crime novelist Denise Mina is the author of a trilogy of novels set in Glasgow, Garnet Hill, 1998, which won the Crime Writers Association John Creasy Memorial Dagger, Exile and Resolution, Sanctum, which is a story of a forensic psychiatrist convicted of killing a serial killer, The Field of Blood in 2005, The Dead Hour in 2006, and The Slip of the Knife in 2007. She's also a short story writer and a playwright. Her latest novel is entitled Still Midnight, which is coming out in about a month. Welcome to the Bibliophile. Thank you. A lot of your work depicts mental illness, sexual abuse, alcoholism. I guess these are typical problems found within Glaswegian society. But when you think of Glasgow, you do think of working class, you think of drug abuse, you do think of these kind of problems. Yeah, no, I mean, they're very kind of culturally situated problems. I think it's something we've exported to the rest of the world, (laughs) our alcoholism, (laughs) probably. I read somewhere that you'd moved something like 18 times in your first 20 years. Yeah. I wonder how that might have affected your capacity to come up with riveting plot lines. Well, I don't know how much it did. My sister did as well, and she's a primary school teacher. So I don't know that moving a lot, but I think an itinerant childhood's very interesting, especially if you come from a big, very secure extended family like me. Mm. So you don't have... Because I think it can be very damaging moving a lot. But for us, it wasn't really because we always had a big family at home. So we always felt very rooted. But, you know, we saw lots of different worlds. But I think it gave us a bit of an outsider's perspective on things. And mental illness... Well, you know, I read a lot of crime fiction and uh, and a lot of fiction, and I just got fed up reading narratives that kind of suggested anyone who'd ever had any kind of mental illness was irrational and incapable for the rest of their lives, and I, I just got s- or, or needed saved by someone who wasn't mentally ill. Or they were some and kind of monster. That exactly, was, I just got so fed up with reading those kinds of narratives and. Mm-hmm. Um, and a lot of the very right-wing American crime fiction narratives where people who committed crimes were invariably mentally ill and they were they had a different psychological makeup than normal human beings. Like Hannibal Lecter. Exactly, you know, who would be the, the, the normal people would be the police and they would shoot the person at the end without a trial and that would be justice. And I, I was doing a PhD into the construction of mental illness and female offenders and how it was ascribed on the basis of gender. You know, because mental illness is a social construction, so we do decide mm-hmm. that certain behaviours are totally irrational and the, it takes all the, the med- meaning away. The medical profession does, where yeah. it used to be the clergy. Well, now it's the, the medical profession and the law, because mm-hmm. the law often determines whether or not someone has agency. So, you know, I was very interested in that, and I was writing a thesis about it, and I thought, no one's ever going to read this thesis, but if I put it in a crime fiction narrative, lots of people would read it, and, and lots of people have, and, you know, people have, have said to me, that you know they read it when they were in hospital and things like that, which really means the world to me that a detective would have suffered from a mental illness and then would go on to use rational deduction as a method of solving a problem and that someone would do something, a woman would be violent and traditionally in crime fiction if a woman's violent it's either because she suffers from a mental illness um, and in the lo- in legal spheres if a woman is very violent she's always you know, regard- she's always tested for mental illness as if a woman could never have a good reason for being violent. So I wanted to put that in a story and uh, and look at that. It's interesting, isn't it, that once a person is branded as being mentally ill, there's the sense that there is no cure for it. That's just the way they it are. It never leaves them. 
that's it it's like the monolith of your sanity has been knocked down and it can never be rebuilt i mean i don't know what the statistics are like over here but in scotland it's one in four people will suffer from some form of mental illness at some point in their life so that means that 25 percent of the population are just cast aside it's ridiculous and, mm. and everybody knows it's ridiculous anyone who's ever met anybody or has a member of their family or has themselves ever suffered from a mental illness knows it's a nonsense but we accept it in narrative terms you know most of the bravest people i've ever met in my life have been schizophrenics who were living in the community with dignity for 30 years with voices shouting at them all the time and they coped with that and they had a social life and they dressed themselves every day I mean I mean I could run into a burning building I could shoot people in Iraq but I don't know if I could do that to be honest with you do you know what I mean and, and those are real epic heroes who are not lauded and they really should be lauded and it's an amazing story that people can love like that you know the other thing too is that mental illness is cyclical it is and so right. you can have quote perfect health for yeah. 10 15 years and then get hit for and yeah. down for a couple of years and then back up again. Yeah. So what did you find then with your PhD thesis? Was this the message you wanted to deliver to the well, world? I actually discovered some really complex things and um, you couldn't really put them on a t-shirt. It was things like mental illness as a social construct that we at different times historically we decide different things are okay, different things are not okay, different behaviours are acceptable. You know, even with homosexuality, I think it was the American Psychiatric Association decided in 1973 that it was no longer a mental illness, which tells you everything you need to know about the way we create mental illnesses, you know. I just felt those ideas weren't out there that much, and I knew a lot of people who'd been in hospital or who'd been getting treatment, and I think one of the worst things about suffering from any kind of mental illness was that people immediately felt themselves diminished. So I wanted to create a really epic hero who did something and, and a big part of what they overcame was not shooting a serial killer, but that they had this past and they lived with dignity and they had integrity. And the other thing too is just getting over the shame of it. And even, you know, forgiving yourself for not mm. having been well, which mm. so many people can't, and they, they always feel themselves diminished and they're always not sure whether or not it's safe to tell anybody. And I just thought that was such a heroic it was kind of like a war veteran story. People would come back from the war and they wouldn't want to talk about it because they felt they would soil other people if they said, and they didn't know if it was safe or... People would think that people would be afraid of them or they would think less of them. Think less of them, mm -hmm. exactly. The teenage suicide rates in Scotland have been escalating wildly, and I'm sure that's because of things like that, the young men getting depressed and thinking, you never come back from this, I might yeah. as well talk myself. And, you know, 15-year-olds hanging themselves and stuff like that. And so that, that's that the was, awful thing. That, that is it the really awful is. thing it about really mental illness, is. that when you're in it, you think you'll never get out of exactly. it. Exactly, yeah. exactly. And even afterwards, you know, people feeling that is the story of their lives. Not mm -hmm. that it's part of the composite of their story, mm -hmm. but that it's the defining thing, that they'll always be an ex-mental patient. Yeah. When, you know, they're also a brother, they're also a sister, they're also a mum. Or an intelligent writer or a accountant or whatever it exactly. is. Exactly. Then there's also the fear that it'll come back again. Yeah, but you know, I mean, I think that there are all those really sort of small domestic heroics that are never really discussed. And I think crime fiction is such a great narrative place to put those difficult stories, because they are difficult stories to tell. If you write a, a literary novel about someone who suffered from a mental illness, 
it's very difficult to make people read that, you know, and make, make them read it as you're my character I identify with. Do you know what I mean? So I think that's what's amazing about crime fiction is that you can tell really, really difficult stories and it's very easy to make a character sympathetic because the, the, the sort of moral lines are quite clearly drawn and audiences who read crime fiction read voraciously and they read in a very empowered kind of way. Well, they don't brook any fantasy. They are adamant that there's verisimilitude Mm -hmm. because if there isn't, then they're not going to be able to use their logic to figure it Mm -hmm. out. That's right, yeah. So, And they're very demanding as well. I mean, they never say, I didn't really like that. They say, that was crap. Do you know what I mean? Whereas if you talk about literary fiction, people drop their voice and say, I didn't really like that Salamanderstay book. Yeah. But if you talk about Ian Rankin or P.D. James, they'll say that was rubbish. Interesting. It's very empowered readership. And they come to it with their defences down. People read crime fiction as an escape, as a game. As a puzzle. As a puzzle. So it's, it's never an obligation and it's never self-improvement. People read crime fiction usually feel a little bit guilty about it. It's like keeping your mind fresh with crossword puzzles. Yes, it is. It is. It's a lovely, lovely thing. You know, I often feel sorry for literary writers because if somebody doesn't like their book, they're asked to explain why that person didn't like their book or didn't get their book. And if you're a crime fiction writer, you can just say, it wasn't for you. (laughs) Do you know what I mean? For you, it was was shite. It was a shite book for you. But for somebody else, it might have been a good book. Well, I think the other great thing about crime fiction is that your readership expects expects a conclusion that explains everything, whereas so many literary novels will leave it up to the reader. Well, see, I think crime fiction readers, or people who, who are reading crime fiction, because I think it's much broader than it used to be, and I think some people have go through phases in their life where they read a lot and then they go back to literary novels or whatever. I think they're much more open-minded now, and I think it is possible to leave some things hanging. I do. I think you would feel cheated if there was no conclusion, but I don't think it all needs to be tied up as tightly anymore. What are the things that you're uh, lauded for? Are your your funny or threatening similes as rough as a badger's arse? Do you have some favourites? Most of those are just things people see in Glasgow. Yeah, so you so just keep your ears open. Abroad, then. people think I'm making these things up. Yeah. I'm actually just stealing them. <laughs> <laughs> like any good writer. Yeah. yeah. There's another lovely little line here that I'm I'm actually riffing off something that's on this great British Council site, the Contemporary Writers oh, site. Right, uh-huh. You talk about uh, a husband keeping his eye on the young Spanish au pair. Her bum looks like two jumbo plums quivering in a silk hanky. You didn't get that off the streets. No, I actually saw someone's arse who looked like that, and I yeah. and and I was struggling. I was with a friend and I was struggling to think of a way to describe it because it was hypnotic and I saw him looking at it and he was a bit embarrassed and I said, look, I can't take my fucking eyes off it. Either. It's amazing. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> and also I just read Nabokov's Lolita yeah. and he there was a line oh, that just yeah. really struck me and it was birds fighting over jumbo crumbs and I just I thought it was such a beautiful phrase and it really struck me because I thought only someone writing in a second language well I think it was his fifth would use that word because it is a it is a very kind of pop culture word and he was a very high art writer and only someone who didn't understand the cultural associations with a word like that like jumbo would use that exactly you know which I mean I suppose at that time it was still probably associated with a 
an elephant. It was yeah. the, the phrase came from it was an elephant's name in Barnum Circus. But it was just I was just really really struck by it, and I was still thinking about it. So that was where that came from. There's another fabulous line that he uses in Lolita: pouring champagne into a silk pocket without disturbing the contents. It was oh, really? it was about his raping basically yeah. of Lolita. I assume then you you're always alert to what other people are saying so that you can steal what what's good. Yeah. But what about other ways of of coming up with what you're renowned for? Do you know I've, no one's ever asked me about that before and I've never really thought about it and I often worry that I use too many similes because they do become quite tiresome because they take you away from a narrative, you know. I don't know if you know the George Orwell essay, Why I Write. He's very firm about clean writing, and I'm always slightly disappointed when I read myself again and realise how florid I am. Well, um, and in fact, that's one of the things that you know the connoisseurs of detective stories say. is The less you distract the reader from the plot, the yeah, better. Yeah, I think that's. I mean, I think that is true, and and I think there's a, a real modesty to that. And I think with political writing and crime writing, or writing that has a purpose or a parallel purpose. You do want to keep it as clean as possible and similes always have to be illustrative but not distracting. You know what I mean? So if you crowd it too much, it does take away. But then think about Chandler and stuff like that. And I, um, I think, you know, keeping the narrative very clean is very much an American kind of tyranny of Hemingway. Really macho, pared down style. Aggressive. And yeah, mm, you know. and Punchy punchy and I don't know I just think there aren't that many rules to it but you know I, I think political writing is more where I would take a line from rather than the traditions of crime fiction the, the sort of American noirish that sort of tradition. Tartan noir was how you've been, been described right? We started off talking about mental illness so let's get a psychoanalytical take on the detective story. This is from, I assume she's some psychiatrist researcher uh, back in the 50s, I think. Her mm. name is Geraldine Pedersen Cragg. This is an essay that she wrote. It's called The Detective Stories and the Primal Scene. She suggests that it derives from their reactivation of the interest and curiosity originally aroused in the primal scene. According to, to her, the murder is a symbolic representation of parental intercourse, and the victim is the parent for whom the reader, the child, had negative Oedipal feelings. The clues in the story, disconnected, inexplicable, and trifling, represent the child's growing awareness of details it never understood, such as the family sleeping arrangements, nocturnal sounds, stains, incomprehensible adult jokes and remarks. The reader, addicted to mystery stories, tries actively to relive and master traumatic, infantile experiences he once had to endure passively. Becoming the detective, he gratifies his infant curiosity. What do you think about that? I think it's bollocks. Do you do? I, I do. I just think it's a poetic <laughs> reinterpretation of what a detective story is. I mean, I think a lot of psychotherapy is poetic. Mm. It is a poetic understanding of the world. But I think it's a lot of shite. <laughs> well, I'll give you a bit more from okay. someone else. Along the same lines, the reader loves to wear the persona of the detective to satisfy the urge of curiosity of the Freudian anxious child. And the eventuality of a murder generally stands for the Freudian family equation of parental sex. Why is it sex? 
Why is it not the bin men coming? Why is it not the way a car well, works? <laughs> it's just a bit psychotherapist trying to shoehorn everything into a Freudian construction. You know there are lots of Freudian illnesses that no longer exist. There's one, I can't remember the name of it, but it's a complex and it's a fear of success. Um, you know, it was applied extensively to Scotland's not being independent and mm. it was like this huge psychotherapeutic problem that hobbled Scotland from becoming independent and it's just, it's a poetic analogy. Yes, It's yes. not any more true, it doesn't, to me it doesn't bring any more true than children don't understand religion, children don't understand money. Do you know what I mean? Or they don't understand where do trains go at night? Why isn't that the great well, abiding no, mystery I, I, for no, children? I, I disagree. There's a certain fundamental mystery that about sex that's that's more compelling than you know how a car works. Definitely. Do you think so? Yeah, I, I don't think know. So. I mean, I think if you're quite open about sex with children, then does that mean they're never going to read detective? Crime fiction. Lots of Dutch people read detective fiction, and they have sex education at six. No, no, I'm not. I'm not saying that it's a question of being open or not being open with them. I just think there's a fundamental curiosity. Does that chime with you? Do you think that makes sense uh, for you? Uh, <laughs> I sometimes want to try. What what chimes with me is the degree of curiosity around sex. I just think that the parallel between curiosity about sex and death, curiosity mm -hmm. about who murdered whom and how and I think there's some there's some but juice why there. Why is sex synonymous with death? Well one is the urge to overcome the other by procreating you then have a form of immortality. Doesn't work for me. I just think <laughs> children are curious but I, yeah. I'm very cynical about psychotherapy. No I can tell that. I am. My partner's a psychologist and he says it's just you know you know I mean I really believe in cognitive behavioral therapy yeah. If it's applied, I just think it needs to be applied, and I just think it's a religion. So you could say, you know, the interest in crime fiction is about your interest in Jesus and about immortal life and the desire to live forever, and that to me would be as true as psychotherapy because well, it is a yeah. religion. But I mean, it works yeah. for people, so I'm not going to knock it, and I wouldn't knock religion either because it works for some people. What I'm trying to do though is to, to come up with some understanding of why it's so popular. Yeah. I mean, sex is pretty popular. I right? think because it doesn't matter. I do. I think it's like sport. Why is sport popular? Because it, it's a way of people taking themselves outside their world, dealing with problems in another sphere, and you know, problem solving, anticipating, tossing up the importance of things. But ultimately, that can stay there, and it doesn't really matter. It captivates their minds. It's also a way of getting close to to murder and danger without yeah. actually endangering yourself. Yeah, I think so. Yeah, and I think also, you know, as our cultures become safer and safer. People are more interested in crime fiction because it's an, an alien thing. I mean, I don't think people in Darfur are reading Agatha Christie's. I don't think they're reading Urban Noir. Do you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. um, in the same way that the vast majority of crime fiction readers are women, I think a lot of young men experience... I mean, I don't know what it's like over here, but certainly in Britain, young men between the ages of about 50 to 22 are the most likely demographic to be physically assaulted. So they're actually in danger and they're most likely to be stabbed, they're most likely to be beaten up, um, and they don't read crime fiction. I mean, I think the closer you are to physical violence, the less interested you are in fictionalised accounts of it. Kind of a vicarious way of... Yeah, I think it's just, it's interesting because it's alien. And, you know, by going to those places, it's like a meditation. You watch sport, 
you feel relaxed, you're very concerned with the other thing, it takes you out of your life and you come back refreshed. It's like a holiday from your head. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. And I think that's what crime fiction is. Okay. It's good, but it? it's very stimulating. I mean you can go away and you can see something happen in sport and you know and it makes you think about things in your own life and, and there are parallels but it doesn't actually impact on it. So it is an escape like the movies or something. Well it can be uplifting too, obviously. It's, it too. can be fabulous, yeah. you know. And it doesn't mean it's meaningless, it just means you're not being asked to participate in a football game stuff you don't have a stake in. Right. Let's go with P.D. James then, shall we? There are the attractions of a strong plot, a storyline with a beginning, middle, and an end. There's the challenge of a puzzle for those who like following clues. The detective story, like other forms of crime novel, provides vicarious excitement and danger. But there are other interesting psychological reasons. The classical detective story is rather like the modern morality play. It can provide catharsis a means by which both writer and reader exercise irrational feelings of anxiety or guilt. I think that's true. I think it can be like a morality play. Mm-hmm. And to be honest, I do find P.D. James, our books are like a morality play, and that's one of the reasons I don't enjoy them very much. Because they're, they're very preachy. status quo. I would rather that she went beyond the obvious moral position, which is someone who's upper middle class explaining something to a working class person. I just think, you know, think about that. That's... It needs to be questioned. You know, there are all sorts of assumptions there mm. that are really insulting. And I speak as someone who's upper middle class. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. Very much about maintaining the state school. But then I write urban noir, and she writes. I think her things are urban noirish, but they're more pastoral. I think. But maybe she's right. No, maybe we are all writing morality plays. Well, in the sense that we we want right to but we all have vanquish different, we all have wrong. different morals. That's it. Maybe that's the point. Yeah, yeah. Maybe that's the point. The basic moral premise, the sanctity of life, is also an attraction, as is the solution of the plot at the end of the book. The classical detective story affirms our belief that we live in a rational and generally benevolent universe. Well, there we differ, because I mean, I could Dennis Lehane. George Pelicanos, they're not writing books that make you shut them and think all is as it should be in the best of all possible worlds. Do you know what I mean? They're very disturbing and, and they really upset you at the end and they really leave you feeling, questioning things in your own life, you know. And I think that at best, crime fiction does do that to you, is it makes you, you take something away from it and it makes you question your own sense of propriety and your own prejudices, really. For instance, what? Say in Mystic River, people attack the guy they think has assaulted somebody because he was sexually abused, they know he's had a disturbed life, and then it turns out he did nothing. But everyone colludes at the end to cover that up, the fact that this guy's been killed and he didn't actually do anything. That, I think, is about demonising paedophiles and demonising people who've suffered from mental illnesses and communities pulling together to cover up the fact that they're not standing up for people and that nothing was done for that boy. Mm. Um, and, you know, I mean, I don't think that's an affirmation that, that the world is essentially right. Mm. You, know, you know, I think those things are very disturbing. Yes, but what it is, it serves as, a, as an impetus to perhaps change the world. Maybe, but, I mean, I don't think they're all about the fact that the world's essentially right. And I no. think, you know, often, even Chandler, you know, you would not be going to the police to help you. But, you know, I mean, I think most of them do deal with that. Most of them do deal with issues of right or wrong. Yeah. As I say, maybe once you've read it, you become concerned about the behaviour of the police or... Yeah. Uh, or, and try... I assume that's what you'd like people to do, is to, is to think differently about mental health and mental... 
Or even, to be honest, I didn't even really expect that, but I, d I thought people might see themselves in it, you know? And then it turned out that there were far more people who could see themselves in it than, than I'd anticipated. So I wasn't really trying to change people's minds. I was trying to give people who were already in the situation of having suffered from a mental illness mm. new ways to construct their narrative. Some strength then, some... some just just um, to see how epic and heroic yeah, what they, they were are. doing was. Yeah, yeah. You know, rather than... So you're lauding them. Oh, here's another you know, character who needs to be saved and she's always saved by getting a new boyfriend. It's running into the arms yeah, of someone exactly. else. Yeah, exactly. Your protagonist is Maureen O'Donnell, who's a, a social worker who herself has been through mental illness, so she knows what it feels like. Let's move on to someone called uh, Gladys Mitchell. For full enjoyment of the story, the reader needs to use his brains. A problem has been set before him, her, and the true addict obtains pleasure from doing his best to solve it. <laughs> I don't know how old that quote is. It's fairly old. I, I think it's a pu th th those puzzle books are very English mm. country cottage type cozies. Yeah, cozies. Yeah. Cozy mysteries. And I think more people write, Sc Scottish people particularly write urban noir, which is kind of concerned with politics and... Injustice. Not really, just kind of social movement and... Um, you know, social disruption. The cozies, there's always a disruption, which sometimes is a Jewish person coming near the village <laughs> in Agatha Christie's case. And then at the end is the restoration of order. Whereas I think in urban noir, there is a, a sort of chaotic event at the beginning, and there isn't always that restoration to a cozy order at the end. It's just a change. It's a change, yeah. or it's an expurgation, or you know, things are opened up, or the situation is unpacked. But there isn't like cozy resolution at the end, I think. Yeah, the word epiphany has been used in association with your work. Mm -hmm. I should have an epiphany and stop it. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> no, the reader typically, or the character, would have some sort of epiphany at the end of it. Oh, really? <laughs> I don't really know that, that stuff that's written about me. Here it is. Yeah, even <laughs> as it, once there, she allows us a sense of relief, even a sense of epiphany, after all that tension there. So. <laughs> The T Detection Club was formed in London, England. Very strict rules were laid down for the members to follow. The first and greatest commandment was that every clue in the identity of the criminal must be placed fairly before the reader. This provided for a true and just battle of wits between the reader and the author, and this, I think, is one of the main reasons people prefer those detective stories that keep to the rules. Well, I don't write cozies, so... Well, typically you would, would withhold things from the reader, but what you give the reader is what the detective well, gets at the same time. Well, I think, again, she's time. still talking about cozies, so she's really talking about puzzle books yeah. where, you know, you could work it out, but actually you couldn't because you didn't know she was pretending to be dead. Do you know what I mean? So I, yeah. think, I think she's really talking about that very particular type of detective novel. But probably. isn't there some kind of bond between you and the, the reader whereby you're not going to pull a fast one on them? Because you don't want to tick them off. You don't want to leave them sort of a... That, that was cheap that books was a like cheap that. trick I don't, I don't think people read my books like that i think they read i don't think they read to try and, i mean i think i uh, you know everyone tries to guess who did what or what's mm. going on no. but i don't think that you have to write it by numbers and see but where was the jewish gentleman was he wearing a sun hat do you know what i mean i just yeah. I, I you know i don't think people are reading books about people with mental illnesses who've been sexually abused in their childhood to try and solve the fucking puzzle. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think Gladys is talking rubbish. I think she needs psychotherapy. Well, maybe she ended up in a mental hospital. Well, she sounds lovely, actually. Yeah, she does. 
Of old, the purist laid down the axiom that love had no place in a detective story and was nothing but an unnecessary and most undesirable effluent when introduced into those otherwise unpolluted waters. It confused the narrative and damned the flow of pure reason for love's detractors, so far as the detective story is concerned, can rightly claim that there is nothing so unreasonable, so utterly illogical as love. The unreasonable and the illogical have no place in a mystery. Uh, again, I don't really agree with that. I think she's talking about Lord Peter Whimsey, actually. How old is that quote? That is fairly old, yeah. But I think she's talking about Lord Peter Whimsey because he fell in love with Steve, didn't he? So I think she's, that sounds very specifically as if she's talking about that. Yeah, well, she's backed up by Wilfred Huntington Wright. I've though. never heard of any of these people. Are they real people? Yeah, Wilfred is, yeah. We come now to what is perhaps the outstanding characteristic of the detective novel, its unity of mood. The various moods of the ordinary novel, such as love, romance, adventure, wonder, mystery, are so closely related that they may be intermingled or alternated without breaking the thread of interest, whereas the detective's novel, the chief interest being that of mental analysis and overcoming of difficulties, any interpolation of purely emotional moods produces the effect of irrelevancy, unless, of course, they are integers of the equation and are subordinated to the main theme. For instance, in none of the best detective novels will you find a love interest. So again, you're just you're going to say that's the cozy... Yeah, I think so, because it's a puzzle book, really, he's talking about. Okay, so you don't do puzzles, then? No. You use some of these techniques, though, to keep your do reader you know, everybody turning uses the those page. Techniques. Yeah. Use, you know, holding off information. Ian McEwan uses it. Everybody yeah. uses those techniques. Graham Greene uses it, holding out information, teasers, clues. Even in his non-entertainments, he's t- you know everybody uses them. You know, people use them in culture. People use them in language and storytelling and everything. Yeah. They're not particular to crime fiction, I don't think. I'm speaking with award-winning crime novelist Denise Miner whose most recent novel is entitled Still Midnight. This is an, another quote from Willard. I, I called him Wilfred, so uh, I want to get the record straight. His name is Willard Huntington Wright. What he talks about is the fact that the detective novel is actually using principles that are opposite to what your ordinary novel might use. He says that a sense of reality is essential detective novel, a castles in Spain atmosphere where the reader may escape from the materiality of every day, often gives the average popular novel its charm and readability, but the objective of the detective novel, the mental reward attending its solution, would be lost unless a sense of verisimilitude were consistently maintained. A feeling of triviality would attach to its problem and the reader would experience a sense of wasted effort. Well, I th- again, I think there, there's urban noir, which is more realistic, and then there are cosies, which are unrealistic, and you know the readership is very divided. Some people mm. will only read urban noir, and some people will only read... I mean, actually, a lot of Agatha Christie's are very, very violent, and mm. they're set in a pastoral England mm. that didn't exist 30 years before Agatha Christie started writing them. And also, I think literary fiction is much broader than that. Well, I think the point he's making, though, is, is one that's valid, and that is that the, the more accurate detail about mm. you know the, the guns that were used or the, the way that someone bleeds after being 
knifed or whatever. These are all things that if they're as true to life as possible, the reader then feels that it's worthwhile them solving the right. problem because it's a real problem. Right, right. But then I think in in cosy detective fiction, I mean, there there is a there are a stream of books that are about a cat detective. I don't know if you've ever read them, but I mean, those are the epitome of cosy. And you know, like Stephanie Plum books are quite cosy. You know, I mean, I think literary fiction is much broader than that, and a lot of literary fiction is very realistic. And I think now, particularly in Britain, there's a real strand of, you know, a crossover between a lot of my work uses true crime and a lot of literary writers are using true crime Andrew Hagen and mm. um, Dave Peace um, all those people are using true crime as a, a sort of basis for storytelling and to build that kind of true world so I don't really know what the Castles in Spain books he's talking about are I, I think you know it's such a broad church that it's very hard to say this is the abstract truth about this and I think you know it's such a wide readership that they, they come to it for a exactly, variety of different reasons. Exactly. Yeah. I don't think you can say this is the one reason anybody does this. Okay. One final point that that he makes is that, uh, and the, the point that we've made, but he also says that a familiarity with the terrain and a belief in in its existence are what give the reader his feeling of ease and freedom in manipulating the factors of the plot to his own, which are the author's ends. He then suggests that the detective novel is nearly always more popular in the country in which it is laid than in a foreign country where the conditions, both human and topographic, are unfamiliar. You would think that, but actually my books are bigger in the States than they are in the north of England. What's the name of the writer who's here whose book sold a million in England last year? I can't remember. Giles Blunt? Okay. Yeah, yeah, I think yeah. it might be, but I think, um, I think that, that a lot of detective fiction sets things in a, in a real place and I think that it's a convention and also it, you know, it gives the writer a shorthand for setting and shorthand for tone. I mean, Steve Larson, you know, his books are enormous everywhere, they're not mm. confined to Stockholm no. um, and I think if you work hard enough at it and create a true enough world, then those things are interesting sometimes. I mean, number one, Ladies Detective Agency. Mm -hmm. It's it's interesting because it is another world. The fact that it's set in a real place and has a lot of aspects of that mean that the reader feels that they've gone to another world. Yes, yeah, a place that a lot of people are interested in. Exactly. Two final questions. Basically, you've trashed every single rule that I've brought up here. So this question may be a, an obvious one. To what extent do you follow the rules? And to what extent do you ask your own creative mind to summon up unexpected turns and surprises? Well, I think if you read a lot, I think that's people who write, read. And that is the most important thing you can ever say to anybody when they're learning to, or they want to write, is do you read, what do you read, read more. Um, and I think the inner reader in you always needs to be asking while you're writing, why would anybody care about this? Why would anybody turn the page? what's the question in the reader's mind and that's the one rule is be interesting and I don't think there are rules because I do think crime fiction, detective fiction is such a wide interest and that the readership are so well versed in convention mm -hmm. if you stick to any convention or even just a simple challenge of a convention that's too simplistic for the readership. They're yeah. much more sophisticated than that. They know all the tricks. Is it like Mozart? Do you sit down and it just pours through you onto the page? Some days and then other days it's like pulling teeth, yeah. to be honest. Other days you really have to just hit yourself in the feet with a hammer and say, I'll stop that the next time you write a sentence. So, carrot stick and everything in between. 
Final question. Uh, can't help but think of Robbie Coltrane and that brilliant TV show, Cracker. Yes. What do you think about that? Oh, I thought it was great. Did you like it? I thought it was the best thing I've seen. Because of him? That's because of him, in large part. Yeah. That and The Sopranos. That rivals The Sopranos, mm -hmm. I think. Yeah. What was it about that TV show that was so I think great? Robbie Coltrane's amazing to watch. I think he's incredibly compelling as a person. Mm -hmm. And also, it was written by a guy who's now racing the street, and he's a brilliant, brilliant writer. And, uh, but What's I his think name? Do you know his name? Oh, I can't remember his name. But he wrote the first series. He wrote the one with Robert Carlyle. And um, he's a brilliant writer, and he writes really challenging, unexpected stuff. And I watched it with a forensic psychologist who every five minutes said that would never happen and it was still great. Yeah, it didn't it was matter. A great watch, didn't, it was just it was a brilliant watch. But I think there's something really compelling about Robbie Coltrane mm. and you could watch him he did a series about um, combustion engines. Yeah. <laughs> he did. <laughs> My friend was the producer and it was still watchable because he's really he was an engineer and he's really interested in engines. And I think part of it is because you never see anyone who looks like him. Yes, he's so big and... <laughs> he just, no one looks yeah, like him. Yeah. He's just like an alien on TV yeah. because he hasn't got a bob nose and hairless chest, you know. And also he's a really, really clever man. But as an actor, I think he's really compelling on the screen. And so I think it was a mix of those two things. But, you know, I work with a lot of TV companies doing development and they're always saying we want the next cracker because it was just such a runaway success and it was just must-watch TV and there's been nothing like it since. So, uh, well, we'll expect that from you then. Yeah, okay then. Great. No pressure then. <laughs> Thank you so much for your time. Ah, uh, not at all. It was a pleasure. I've been speaking with uh, Denise Miner. She's an award-winning Scottish crime fiction novelist, but it jumps the boundaries of any kind of genre. I hope so. I also write comics. Hellblazer. Do you know Hellblazer? I've heard of it, yeah. Well, I, write Hell I wrote Hellblazer for a year, and, uh, and last year I wrote... Uh, have you ever heard of Hugh McDermott? Yes, I have. But he wrote oh. a, an epic poem in 1925 called A Drunk Man Looks at the Thistle. And last year I wrote a play, which it was a performance epic poem about Scots nationalism called A Drunk Woman Looks at the Thistle. It was on um, on at the Edinburgh Festival and it was on in Glasgow as well. So my biog, I, I, I really need to update it. I'm sorry if you downloaded that, but um, I just don't have time to do it. It's either that or look after the kids. So Priorities. Yeah. Well, your, your latest novel is still still midnight, correct? Yes. Great. Okay. Well, we'll look for that. And uh, thanks again for your time. Thanks very much. Okay. Lovely to talk to you. Likewise. Yeah.